Chapter One of The Girls of Gardenville. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Betsy Bush, Marquette, Michigan, July 2010. The Girls of Gardenville by Carol Watson Rankin. To Pem, Billy, and both Imogenes. The Sweet Sixteen with Specialties. 1. Caroline Flanders, Popcorn Balls. 2. Rhea Margrave, Lemon Drops. 3. Anne Margrave, Fudges. 4. Elizabeth Dillman, Butterscotch. 5. Marjorie Danvers, Peanut Taffy. 6. Adelaide Rogers Stone, Adeline Rogers Stone, Adelette Rogers Stone, Coconut Squares. 7. Pauline Winthrop, Marshmallow Paste. 8. Catherine Denham, Almond Kisses. 9. Tecla Bliss, Alma Boyce, Tecla's Substitute, Crystallized Fruits. 10. Louise Bentley, Molasses Candy. 11. Mabel Mercer, Chocolate Creams. 12. Edna Mercer, More Chocolate Creams. 13. Virginia Donaldson, Several Kinds. 14. Helen Roxbury, Chocolate Nougat. 15. Amy Roxbury, Salted Almonds. 16. Rhoda Belknap, Wintergreen Creams. Introduction There must have been a period of time, extending over three or four years, when all the infants and all the perambulators in all the picturesque streets of Gardenville in northern Michigan were baby girls. Or perhaps for a long term of years, each family that moved to that fortunate town included at least one nice little girl. At any rate, by the time Carolyn Flanders was sixteen, almost every house in Gardenville was supplied with one, two, or three lively maidens sufficiently near Caroline's own age to make congenial companions for her and for one another. An aged census-taker, who had probably had more census-taking experience in his long life than usually falls to the lot of any one man, often said that he was willing to wager that Gardenville was the very girliest spot on the map, if one accepted the eastern college towns. As he was known to be a cautious man, not given to the making of reckless wagers, his statement was readily believed. Moreover, it really seemed as if the gatherer of statistics must be right if the high school classes were any criterion. For, from the eighth grade up, the public schools were amazingly girly. One year, indeed, a solitary, very much embarrassed boy had been graduated with a class of twenty-seven girls, but that, of course, was an exceptional year. As might have been expected in a town as well equipped with girls as was Gardenville, there were numerous clubs of assorted sizes and various aims. One of the most popular of these was the Candy Club, most appropriately named the Sweet Sixteen, and as may be guessed, its aim was not as lofty as was that of some of the other clubs. But the girls of the Sweet Sixteen had wonderfully good times at the meetings of their jolly, happy-go-lucky little club, and incidentally the various members at home or abroad, individually or collectively, met with certain more or less exciting adventures. The first of these, however, has to do with the club itself, and with one of its most popular members. Chapter 1. Caroline of the Sweet Sixteen 
One. When Caroline Flanders was informed that she had been elected secretary and treasurer of the Sweet Sixteen, she was very much surprised and not at all delighted. For although Caroline had no serious objections to candy, she frankly hated everything pertaining in any way to the science of numbers. There was something about the word treasurer that suggested money, and that to Caroline's mind suggested counting. Caroline hated to count. She declared she couldn't. Don't ever depend on me, she would say sometimes, for anything with figures in it. And please don't ask me to remember dates. I know just one, and I can never remember what happened on that. But, her teasing brother Tom would say, there are figures about everything you eat and wear and do. You can't escape them. Even the very nearly red hairs on your head are numbered. See? Here Tom would tweak one out and examine it closely. This is number 196. But vague as she was in all matters numerical, Caroline, a lively, bright-eyed girl, with an attractive, intelligent, and somewhat freckled countenance, was clever enough in certain other directions, and this cleverness led the other girls to imagine, most mistakenly, that Caroline would make a good officer. Oh, no, cried Caroline, when the announcement of her election was made at one of the pleasant meetings of the little club. Let somebody else do it. You know there isn't a mathematical hair in my scatterbrained head. Give the office to Helen Roxbury. She loves arithmetic. But we can't, demurred Mabel Mercer, the president. You see, you're already elected, and we don't know how to unelect you. There isn't anything in the rules about that. Besides, you can't be scratched off without dragging me off, too, because we're on the same ticket, and I want to be president. Well, said Caroline, you've made a dreadful mistake. I'll have the club in pecuniary difficulties inside of two weeks. You know I can't add with any sort of accuracy. I can't subtract at all. And as for counting money... Oh, that's all right, laughed Rhea Margrave, flashing her pretty dark eyes at Caroline. You know, dearie, we never have any money to count. Yes, yes, cried Mabel persuasively. We haven't a single cent. All you need to do is to write down the names of the girls present at each meeting. And, added Tecla Bliss, if you count the three stones as one, and you know we always do because they are triplets and can't all leave home at once, there are only sixteen of us. You see, you can't possibly make more than fifteen mistakes, and they won't matter anyway. It really seemed as if pretty, rather careless Tecla were right. There was certainly no money, and sixteen girls were surely not too many to count, even if they did bob around until they seemed a great deal more like sixty. So Caroline, with her unmathematical mind at rest, accepted the situation and the honor, and found that her duties for the next few weeks were indeed so light that they masqueraded as pleasures. The sweet sixteen, however, met frequently, cooked industriously, and gave lavishly of its toothsome achievements and in time, as was natural in a town of only 12,000 inhabitants, the fame of the chocolate creams, excellent fudges, coconut kisses, and other good things made by the little club spread abroad, until even the grown-up population of Gardenville became interested. Indeed, some of the more thoughtful began to see ways in which the industry of the Sweet Sixteen might be turned to profitable account. One day, a delegate from the Women's Aid Society called upon Mabel, the president, and in all seriousness suggested that the Sweet Sixteen, 
sell some of its toothsome wares in order to devote the proceeds to a certain worthy charity. "'We'd be delighted,' cried flattered Mabel with instant enthusiasm. "'I'm so glad you thought of asking us.' "'Yes,' declared Rhea, who happened to be spending the afternoon with Mabel. "'I'm sure Mr. Barlow would lend us the vacant store next to Manard's, "'and it will be just fun to fix it up with bunting and things. "'We could have our sale some afternoon next week, "'and I know that every one of the girls will be perfectly delighted to help. "'I'll go this minute and tell them about it.' "'I'm sure you're very kind,' murmured the surprised delicate, "'unaccustomed to such an enthusiastic response to her pleadings. "'To ourselves,' smiled Mabel, whose manners were graceful. "'You see, it'll be a change from our regular meetings. "'We've never done any big, important things like that, "'and it'll be lots of fun.' "'Well,' said the grateful lady, rising to depart, "'I'm glad it strikes you that way. "'It took me an hour and a half this morning "'to solicit a cake from Mrs. Carver, "'and I expected to spend the entire afternoon "'persuading you to fall in with my plan.' "'And instead,' laughed Rhea, we just jumped in, didn't we, with all our thirty-two feet. After several days of frenzied preparation, the sale took place the following Friday, and was so surprisingly successful that even the always sanguine girls were amazed. At the end of the very first hour, not a crumb remained of the Stones girls' coconut squares and peppermint wafers, of Rhea Margrave's lemon drops, or of Catherine Denham's delicious almond kisses. Caroline's mountain of popcorn balls melted, at the rate of two for five cents, like snow under an April sun. And Mabel's really delightful creams were so popular that Mabel began to fear that she should be obliged to devote the rest of her life to the making of chocolate creams in order to fill the orders that she had rashly consented to take. The Candy Club girls were, of course, perfectly delighted. They had succeeded beyond their wildest hopes, their wares were appreciated by a critical public, and all the girls were happy, except Caroline. As her popular popcorn balls departed in couples, Caroline eyed with disfavor every five-cent piece that dropped into her box. It's to be hoped, she thought, absent-mindedly giving thirty cents and two balls in exchange for a quarter, that all my customers are honest. Otherwise, you've given me too much, said the smiling customer, returning ten cents. "'Oh, thank you,' breathed Caroline. "'That seems to be a habit of mine.' Caroline gave a deep sigh of relief a little later when the last snowy popcorn ball had vanished and the big platter was empty, but her joy was brief. "'Here, Miss Treasurer,' said Mabel, dropping a box of jingling coin into Caroline's lap. "'Just see what I've got for you. We must have more than sixty dollars in that box. Besides the money for the candy, we've had several perfectly beautiful presents.' Mr. Budge gave us ten dollars, and these charges on this spindle are just as good as cash. Aren't you glad we've done so splendidly? Not particularly, returned Caroline, regarding with a gloomy countenance the heavy box in her lap. What in the world am I to do with all this? Take it home with you and count it. Ugh, groaned Caroline. And after that? Give it to Mrs. Beeman next Wednesday when she gets home from Chicago. She's the treasurer for the women's aid. It'll take me until next Wednesday to get it counted, grumbled the unhappy secretary, still eyeing the box resentfully. Why can't somebody else do it? You know I can't count things. 
It's time you learned, laughed Mabel. Besides, you're the treasurer. It's your duty to attend to all the finances. Well, isn't Mrs. Beeman a treasurer, too? demanded Caroline hopefully. Why can't she count it? Because that wouldn't be businesslike. And you know you'll have to read your report at the next meeting, so you'd better get to work. I'll do it tonight, promised Caroline dejectedly. But, oh, you don't know what you're asking of me. Caroline went to her own room immediately after tea and poured the contents of the cash box, which happened to be a cigar box, out on her snowy bed. The task of counting it certainly did not appeal to her. She was not accustomed to the counting of money, or, indeed, to responsibility of any sort, for her mother attended to the housekeeping and her father paid the bills. Her own small purchases were charged to the family account. Mrs. Flanders, indeed, often complained that Caroline, who sometimes assisted with the shopping, invariably failed to ask the price of things. She averred that it was all one to her heedless daughter whether eggs were twelve cents a dozen or forty-five. Even when beefsteak soared beyond reason, Caroline remained calm. To be sure, Caroline always promised, when reproached, to do better next time. But when next time arrived, the girl was as heedless and as sweetly vague as ever. The treasurer of the sweet sixteen, perched on the edge of her puffy white bed, separated the coins into unsteady little piles and counted industriously for half an hour. The process was even more difficult than she had imagined, but she persevered until the muscles of her unpracticed tongue grew weary. The bills and the larger coins amounted to thirty-seven dollars, an enormous sum to Caroline. She reached that amazing amount three times in succession without disaster. But beyond that, everything was vague. The inexperienced little officer, of course, worked with a nervous haste, for besides being tired after the excitement of the day, she wanted to get at her lessons, but naturally the more she hurried the greater was her confusion. Her dainty fingers began presently to smell just like old copper pennies, and she looked anxiously at Mr. Budge's ten-dollar bill. "'I'm wearing that bill out handling it so much,' she said. "'I guess I'd better put it in an envelope.' I always knew it was hard to count money, but I never dreamed it was as bad as this. I left the dimes out twice. I always think that those two-dollar bills are fives, and I can't remember the five-cent pieces because they're under the pillow. Then, three times out of four, I forget the Canadian quarter that rolled under the bed and the bright new penny in my apron pocket. I wonder how in the world they manage to do it in banks. I suppose that's why so many cashiers abscond. The poor things get so perfectly frantic counting money that they just have to run away. If I—oh, dear, what an abominably shaky old bed! Poor Caroline had inadvertently jarred the springs, and for the seventeenth time all her neat little piles of coins had tumbled together in a hopelessly mixed-up heap. The discouraged treasurer swept the money into its box, thrust the box into a drawer, and sat down to work at her Caesar. Even Caesar seemed pleasant by contrast with the unaccustomed duties of her office. Tired Caroline went to bed at nine o'clock, but she could not sleep. Her tongue was still counting feverishly, and she could see countless dollars, dimes, and pennies dancing over her ceiling. She knew that she could, as a last resort, take the money to her most obliging of fathers, and that he would count it for her, but the pride of the Sweet Sixteen's secretary and treasurer roused at last, made such a course impossible. 
Then she began to wonder if the money were safe. She had never before given the subject much thought, but certainly no window in the house was more inviting to a porch-climber than hers. A burglar with any experience at all would know that the top drawer of a bureau was the place of all places to look for valuables. With a shiver of dread she remembered shaking the contents of the cash-box in the dining-room before Nora the cook. Nora herself was honest, but suppose Nora should inadvertently mention it to her young man. Suppose the young man should be dishonest, or should happen to confide in some dishonest relative. Imaginative Caroline, thoroughly frightened, crept out of bed, felt in the drawer, found the box, and concealed it under her pillow. Then she snuggled down in the warm bed and closed her eyes. Still she could not sleep. How perilously easy it would be for some midnight marauder to slip his hand under her pillow, seize the box, and make his escape down the smooth pillar of the porch. She wondered for the first time in her life if her father had remembered to lock the front door. At last, however, she fell into a light doze. She awoke with a start just as the clock was striking twelve. Suddenly, panic-stricken, she felt for the box. To her surprise, it was still under her pillow, but the nervous girl was certain that she could hear stealthy footsteps on the roof of the veranda. If she had dared to look out, however, she would have discovered nothing more terrifying than a neighbor's cat. "'What a goose I was,' said Caroline, hopping out of bed, "'not to think of leaving it right out in plain sight where a burglar would never dream of looking. I'll do it now.' She crept silently down the stairs to search in the dark for a new hiding-place. As she passed the hat-rack in the lower hall, she touched, with her outstretched hand, her brother Tom's fish-basket. "'The very thing,' chattered shivering Caroline. "'Nobody'd ever think of looking in anything of Tom's for money. "'This basket has been hanging here for weeks. "'He never goes fishing any more, now that he's so interested in golf. "'I'll just empty his fishing-tackle and other traps,' out into the overshoe box for tonight. Why, murmured the girl a moment later when she opened the basket, what a coincidence. Here's a cigar box just the size and shape of this one, and it weighs just about as much. I'll just exchange them. So Caroline slipped her own box into the fish basket and deposited her brother's among the overshoes under the hat rack. Then, still feeling her way cautiously up the stairs and making no sound, she returned to her room, crept into bed, and with a feeling of complete satisfaction fell into a deep, dreamless slumber. She was still sleeping peacefully at four o'clock the next morning, when a door at the other end of the hall opened noiselessly, and an eighteen-year-old boy, in spite of the prevalence of girls, Gardenville was not absolutely boyless, who carried a pair of heavy shoes in one hand and a disjointed fish-pole in the other, stole past her door and tiptoed down the stairs. He went to the kitchen where, with every evidence of haste, he boiled a pot of coffee over the gas stove. He finished his toilet while the potatoes were frying, and then, having disposed of his half-cooked breakfast with almost suicidal speed, he seized his fish-basket from its hook in the entry, and without looking inside, slipped the strap over his shoulder. He then tied his pole to the frame of his bicycle, rushed down the steps with his wheel, and by speeding madly down the deserted street, just succeeded in catching his train. "'It's lucky,' Tom said complacently, as he scrambled into the baggage car with his wheel, "'that I got everything ready yesterday. By Jove, I forgot, after all, to tell Mother where I was going. But it's all right. One place is as good as the other, and she'll probably think that I'm spending the day with Barrows on the links, 
as I intended to do until he sent word that he couldn't get away. Glad, after all, that I didn't mention it. The fish will be all the better for coming as a surprise. Four hours later, the calm treasurer of the candy club, refreshed by a leisurely eaten breakfast, decided to devote the rest of the morning, if necessary, to the counting of her troublesome funds. She cleared a big space on the library table to make room for the coins, built a barricade of books all around the edge so that no rolling cartwheel should escape, and then went confidently to the entry to get the box. She stopped short on the threshold and gave a little gasp of astonishment. The hook held no fish basket. Where? Where was the basket? Where was her box? Where were all those pennies, those dimes, those quarters, halves, and dollars, that shiny new scent, and worst of all, that tattered but nevertheless valuable ten-dollar bill? Mother, cried Caroline, hoping against hope, has Tom gone fishing? No, replied Mrs. Flanders in all sincerity. You know he has been counting all the week on playing golf with young barrows. That settles it, said Caroline tragically. I might have known what would happen if I brought that box home. That burglar was smarter than I supposed he'd be. Every cent of the candy club's money has been stolen, and I'll probably have to spend the rest of my natural life making pop-pop-popcorn balls to make it up. At this forlorn prospect, Caroline burst into tears. You've certainly been exceedingly careless, scolded Mrs. Flanders, rather unjustly indeed, since Caroline had been only too careful. And I hope... Oh, it's a lesson fast enough, sobbed Caroline. I never want to see any money again. There, there, soothed Mr. Flanders, laying aside his paper and gently offering a shoulder for Caroline to cry on. Possibly it isn't such a tremendous sum that we can't replace it if necessary. Perhaps you got up in your sleep and put it someplace else. Don't cry, dear. If it doesn't turn up in a day or two, I'll lend you... How much did you say it was, Caroline? Troubled Caroline produced a slip of paper from her pocket. It's one of those eleven sums, faltered she, but I don't know which. A gleam of amusement flashed into Mr. Flanders' eye as he glanced at the paper but he checked it instantly and drew his sobbing daughter closer. "'The Candy Club,' said he, "'is certainly to be congratulated upon its secretary and treasurer. The largest sum here seems to be seventy-three dollars and forty-eight cents.' "'I'm almost sure,' said Caroline, snuggling a damp nose under her father's ear, "'that I counted those horrid two-dollar bills twice that time and called one of them a five, but I forgot to count the Canadian quarter that's still under my bed. I—' I had the suspicion that sixty-eight dollars would cover it, but, oh, dear! Meanwhile, Tom the fisherman had left the train at a crossing, mounted his wheel, and ridden steadily for more than an hour over a rough hilly road. The day was warm, the sand was deep, and his wheel was working badly because he had neglected to oil it. Tired and perspiring, he finally stopped beside a little gurgling brook and drank thirstily. Then he adjusted his rod, unstrapped his basket, and spread its contents in sportsmanlike fashion on the green grass. Why, he exclaimed with sudden interest, I thought I'd tied a string round this box. Hello, what's this? Money, by Jove! I thought those sinkers were rattling around at a great rate. Well, well, continued Tom, preparing to count the money. I suspect Caroline's at the bottom of this. 
If she is, she's in a state of mind, too, by this time. It just serves her right for being so careless with other people's money. This, too, was distinctly unfair, for if Caroline had erred at all, it had been on the side of carefulness. It was not surprising, however, that Tom should take the gloomiest view of the situation, for the day he had so counted on was just about spoiled. "'Here I am,' grumbled the disconsolate fisherman. Twenty miles from anywhere. No hooks, no line, no bait, nothing but a lot of old money. I can't even go home, for there's no train until seven. I suppose I might ravel out my socks for a line and use a bent pin for a hook. But hang it, I haven't got a pin. Altogether, it was not a pleasant day for either of the young Flanders. But fortunately, even the longest days do not last forever. Just at dusk, Tom tumbled off his dusk-clogged wheel at his own gate, only to be seized and almost strangled by a greatly relieved sister. "'Oh, Tom!' she cried rapturously. "'Then you did go fishing after all!' "'No, I didn't,' said Tom crossly. "'I merely absconded with the candy club's money.' "'Did you happen to count it?' asked Caroline, her eyes shining hopefully. "'I should say I did,' growled Tom. I hadn't anything else to do all day long. But how in the world did you girls ever make $67.92? Oh, thank you, cried Caroline, pulling a pencil from her pocket and hastily scribbling $67.92 on the corner of her apron. Thank you, darling Thomas. That almost repays me for the awfulest day I ever spent. Well, grumbled Tom, evading a second sisterly embrace, I shan't feel repaid until your old club has made me a five-pound box of candy. End of chapter 1